0: As a student, when you are in a course, try to make use of your teachers as much as possible to help you to improve and make all your mistakes, you know, if possible, Um, because it's just an environment for you to learn from and your teachers are going to be people that will understand that, you know, uh, at the start, you're going to not know a lot of things, you're going to make mistakes. So they are very, very understanding about that.
1: Welcome back to the Dental Head Start Podcast. My name is Erica Huyn and I am so delighted to be introducing my guest today, Dr. Alvana Timmerman, who I've been waiting for the longest time to do an interview with, but she is so busy doing a million and one things that we were only able to have a chat just recently. Dr. Avana is a specialist endodontist based in Melbourne. She teaches, she examines for the RACDS, she's heavily involved in research and is currently completing a PhD. And if you follow Dr. Avana on her social media platforms, you'll see that she's always sharing her cases and inspiring us with her fitness journey, which I find to be incredible because on the morning of our interview, she woke up at the crack of dawn to run a full marathon. Um, Meanwhile, I had a great sleep in. But yes, I think Dr. Alvana is a wonderful role model, and in particular for women in dentistry. I was so inspired just listening to Dr. Alvana share her story and journey in dentistry and you know, what led and motivated her every step of the way and what it is that drives her passion to continuously learn things and try new things. In this episode, we talk a little bit about Dr. Alvana's double in forensic odontology and what she thinks about the differences between being a dental student and then a specialist in training after 10 years of general dentistry. We also talk about Dr. Alvana's passion for fitness and and the parallels that she sees between physical activity and dentistry. I had so much fun and so I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. But just quickly before we get to that, for our long term listeners, you may recall around this time last year, I was first introduced to the podcast through Erica's Corner, where I gave you guys updates on our giving project and other little updates about the podcast. And now I have the great pleasure of introducing the new and improved Hayden's Corner. Hayden is our newest editor on the team who works endlessly to provide you all a wonderful listening experience, and he's so full of enthusiasm. So I'm super excited for you all to meet him and I'll hand it over to Hayden to give you guys some updates.
2: Thank you for the introduction, Erica, and welcome podcast listeners to my very own corner. You might be wondering, what is this segment all about? Well, in case you didn't hear... As of this year, all the profits that the Dental Head Start Podcasts make will be going to donations. The mission at DHS has always been to help support dental students to become great dentists. And now, because you listen to the Dental Head Start Podcast, with the support from our sponsors, you are not only getting a head start in dentistry, but also helping to contribute to a greater cause. This month, the podcast has donated $5,000 to the Australian Dental Health Foundation. The ADHF works closely with dentists around Australia who provide pro bono care for patients who would otherwise be unable to easily access or afford dental treatment. You can reach out to the ADHF at givenow.com.au slash ADHF if you would like to make a contribution, however big or small. If there's a charity or cause that you would like to see us get involved with or put a spotlight on, please reach out to us on our social media. Now it's time to get back to Erica and Dr. Timmerman.
1: Dr. Erwin, welcome to the Dental Head Start podcast. I am very excited to have you on the show.
0: Thank you. It's great to finally meet you,
1: uh, Erica. Emi, <laughs> that's the way it is nowadays, isn't it, Doctor Ivana? You've had a very busy morning, haven't you? Because I believe you went on a marathon run.
0: Yeah, I did. I did the Gold Coast Marathon this morning. How was that? It was actually quite hard because I I just couldn't get used to the humidity in Queensland. Um, and I think that if I were to do this race again, I'll probably come here like a few days prior to just get used to the climate because, you know, um, when you run in Melbourne, it's quite dry and quite cold at the moment. But when you run here, you just completely like drench in sweat. So it's quite a different experience. Um, and it was on the road the whole time. It was a road race. So it's pretty hard on the knees um, but it was it went really well. Mm. I'm really happy about the time that I managed to finish it in.
1: That's very good. Have you done a full marathon before?
0: Yeah, so this is my fourth marathon. Um, and the other three marathons prior, I, actually two of them were ultra marathons. So I'm still a beginner, I would say, in long distance running. <laughs> I know it doesn't sound like it, but I'm really a beginner. Um, and I only started running like, you know, about two years ago doing two kilometers. So I'm just still a beginner. <laughs>
1: No way. Okay, I find that very hard to believe because I struggle running to the end of the street. (laughs) Um, You started two kilometres two years ago and now you go up to do full marathons, which is what, like 42 kilometres? Yes, that's right. That's very crazy. Dr. Ivana. I'll throw a question out to you. I guess, why running? Why did you choose running?
0: I guess, um, you know, I've been – quite active in sports since I was little. Um, so mm-hmm. I started doing martial arts when I was maybe about seven years old. Um, mm-hmm. And then I started to get into dancing and then yoga, um, you know, different types of sports. So, and also in my family, like all the guys in my family are all like in the military forces. Yeah. So they run a lot, like, you know, they would do a 60 kilometer run Um you know when they do train in the army so Mm -hmm. uh, for me I felt like that was quite inspiring and I I thought to myself I'd like to do a really long run one day so I told myself okay why not start doing running when you know we had the lockdown in Melbourne because you can only be outdoors Mm -hmm. for like one hour per day so I started with Mm -hmm. doing just a 2k run and then I, I, just, mm-hmm. I then just continue on doing longer and longer runs and build up my fitness that way.
1: That's so incredible. I, also, I think a lot of people picked up hobbies during lockdown. I also tried running, but, and I made it up to 10Ks, but that was about it. So I'm very impressed that you made it all the way to 42. Dr. Ivana. do you see any parallels between running and dentistry, or do you think they're completely unrelated topics?
0: I I really see um, a relationship between running and dentistry because it requires a lot of uh, commitment um, to be able to Mm. do a marathon and you have to have the discipline because – you know, I'll wake up on some days and I think to myself, oh gosh, you know, the weather is so bad. You know, it's <laughs> raining, it's yeah. cold. And why am I like doing this? And I keep telling myself, I'll feel a lot better after doing it. And also, I need to train because if I don't train for a marathon, I would die in the marathon. <laughs> yeah. There are people who attend marathons and they get, you know, taken off in the ambulance because mm. you know, they might be unwell or they might not be prepared for the race. And I thought to myself, I definitely do not wish to be taken into a, an ambulance during a run. And I told myself like I want to be confident in doing a race like that. So, so I've been training consistently for it. And I think that in dentistry as well, like you need to be consistent in your learning process um, in dentistry. Mm. Like, you can't just say to yourself, I'm going to learn how to do crown lengthening and then you then stop doing it. You can't tell yourself, okay, um, you know, I will just do the CPD course and fulfill the requirements that I need to fulfill. Um, then you're not going to be able to sort of grow or progress as a clinician as quickly uh, compared to others because your mindset is really set in like the number of hours that, for example, the, Um, APRA has given you to complete like 60 hours in three years and if Mm -hmm. you think like that then you're not going to be growing as a clinician as quickly or uh, as progressively as um, other people you know who are thinking okay I need to do like maybe more CPD courses in the areas that I'm really interested in or Mm -hmm. you know I need to go beyond 60 uh, hours. When I look at my CPD Courses in the past, as a dentist, I usually do over 100, like h- nearly 120 hours of CPD in three years, and that's because yeah. I made the commitment to myself that if I was to grow as a clinician, I really need to select the ones I really want to do, and also I need to also um, be able to apply that in clinical practice instead of just looking mm-hmm. at it from a perspective that oh, you just need to fulfill the requirements. So I think. Yeah, definitely, you know, go beyond what is required of you as a clinician. I guess maybe a little bit of background. Like when I started, uh, like when I started as a recent graduate dentist, um, the CPT mm-hmm. requirements were just made. Um, uh, mandatory at the time so prior to mm-hmm. my uh, work as a general dentist like I remember that the first few years there wasn't any sort of particular cpd requirements so a lot of mm-hmm. dentists didn't actually even do like 60 hours of cpd per three years they probably did about like 10 or 20 and I can definitely see the difference between the clinicians now and clinicians say you know when I first graduated like we're talking about 20 years ago 20
1: or more years ago. Yeah, definitely. Dr. Ivana, one of the reasons why I really wanted to bring you onto the show, you know, having seen all the things that you post on social media, I feel like you're very much a go-getter. You do so many things, right? You're so active on, you know, um, sharing things online. You're you're so fit. You do a lot of exercise, physical activity. But then, you know, you're a endodontic specialist as well and you're teaching and you're doing a PhD. And I just wonder how on earth you do all all of, these th- all of these things, was this something that I guess you were born with or you know, was it always innate for you just to, to be so busy and to do a bit of everything?
0: I guess um, it probably is because of my personality. I really enjoy having uh, diversity or variety in my work. Uh, and life um so mm-hmm. that's the same with sports like the way I look at it is if I only did running I'll be just good mm-hmm. in one area of sports right so and also it doesn't help me to train you know myself in say other parts of my body if you look at the body of a typical runner usually they're quite skinny quite lean and I told mm-hmm. myself like I just don't want to be you know um, just one type of athlete so I thought it's good to diversify my training and also to you know to avoid injuries by doing other types of exercise as well for example I do Pilates and that's because I want to work on my core yeah. and work on my posture so that you know in dentistry I won't have you know to see my physiotherapies you know, <laughs> because I won't have as many injuries as compared to my peers, uh, for example. And also, um, I guess, you know, my mind is always quite active. So I need mm-hmm. to have uh, the, I guess, stimulation from different sort of areas in sports and in dentistry. Um, and you know, with my work as well, um, I work three days in private practice at the moment. So I do have two other free days, which, you know, I spent doing my PhD. And I also help out uh, at the Australian Dental Council as an examiner and also help out RACDS as an examiner as well. But those work that I do, they're not sort of you know, something that I do every week, but I spread it out over, mm, you know, like once every two months, something like that, or once a month. Um, so it doesn't take up that much of my time. That makes sense. So I tend to sort of um, be also quite a disciplined person. So if I focus on something that I want to do, then usually I will make sure that I finish it or complete it and also make sure that I do it well um so yeah. because you know your mind can only focus on one thing at a time and that's something that yoga has taught me because if you do yoga and you try to go into a pose and you don't focus on what you're doing then you're going to fall you're going to lose your balance um so you, when you actually sort of uh, you know for example when i'm working in a clinical environment um, i probably see myself as a different person to when i'm say running i can't see it as, as you know just a relaxation thing to run and then when i'm at work i'm very focused on my work very, you know I, I want to make sure that i'm looking after my patients as well as i can so you kind of have to focus on yourself in different roles to be able to sort of work in different environments. And also, as a general dentist, you'll find that, you know, you, you might be working in a private practice and then working in a community clinic, for example. So, the type of patients you face are going to be very different. And, you know, what you discuss with the patient could be different as well because, like, you know, in private practice, you will be talking more about, you know, overall treatment planning, uh, where in community dental practice, you, you may not have a chance to do that if the patient was an emergency patient, for example. So your mindset has to change according to the environment and to the type of patients that you face. So I think you have to be very flexible and adaptable in your mind to different environments mm-hmm. to do well um so i guess you know for me i tend to adapt well to different environments because i can focus on each really really well so i think that definitely i think there's uh, an association between the type of sports you do and also um, the dentist you are i think
1: yeah, definitely. I think the one word you said, Dr. Avana, that really stood out to me and it kind of triggered what I wanted to comment on earlier is just discipline. And I think that's what a lot of physical activity, a lot of sports teach you is that you have to be disciplined in your, you know, your, your exercise regime or your training regime. And same thing in dentistry to become a better dentist is you have to be disciplined and committed to learning and growth, right? You've mentioned a lot of things that I really want to dive into and break down a little bit more, but let's wind it back a little bit, Dr. Ivana, just, you know, let's say back, you know, 10 years or so before you specialised, you were a general dentist for 10, around 10 years. Is that correct?
0: Correct. For about 12 years before I decided to go back to study again.
1: And did you always know that you wanted to specialise or was this another example of, you know, you wanting something different, wanting, you know, not just general
0: dentistry and why did you choose endodontics? So, when I was a general dentist, I really enjoyed it. I thought that with general dentistry, it really opened up a lot of doors to different pathways. Like, you know, in dentistry, you could work in different environments, you could own a practice, you could teach, you know, dental students, you could, you know, you could, you could just do so many different things. And I, I really enjoyed that. I think that for most clinicians that have worked over 10 years, they realize that there are going to be specific areas that they are good in and they enjoy Mm. doing a bit more so Mm -hmm. some of my friends like branch off into say orthodontics or more pros work and at the time you know after 10 years I did my fellowship exams with the RACDS and then I realized that I really enjoy studying you know my 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 classmates would tell you that they will see me as a very nerdy very bookworm type of person (laughs) I'm not sure everyone can say that You know like yeah. um a lot of my friends wouldn't see me as a sporty person in you know those uh, yeah. those friends of mine in uh school and um i just enjoy the process of you know reading and writing as well so i find it quite relaxing for me so i think that's why it made me really enjoy the study process because i can explore i can explore new knowledge i can learn more things and i I really enjoyed that. Then I thought to myself, what do I really enjoy in dentistry? And I initially thought maybe I really like forensic dentistry. So I actually volunteered for the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine for about six months. And mm. I went into the uh, you know, mortuary every week. Uh, once a week, it opened my eyes to so many different things. And then after you know six months there, then I realized that you know it was not really suited for me. Yeah, for many different reasons, I just didn't feel like I was a good fit for you know going down that career path. So I started looking at you know what I really enjoy doing in clinical dentistry. And at the time, I was fortunate to work in a practice where there was a microscope. Um, there were different <clears throat> types of specialists working in the same practice. So I thought, you know, once a week, I have if I have time, I'll go and observe a different specialist every single week. Um, and then I ended up observing nearly all of the endodontic space in Melbourne. I realized that, you <laughs> yeah. know, this is an area I'm really interested in um, because yeah. I like helping patients with pain and mm-hmm. I like, you know, um, just the technical aspects of endodontics. I find it very challenging and know when something is challenging to me i actually enjoy it more because i want to you know be able to manage it so i ended up you know choosing endodontics as a field to to go into um and then Mm -hmm. so i applied you know to universities all around australia and also including uh, new zealand hong kong i applied for those universities as well then fortunately was able to get a spot in melbourne uni
3: Ripe Global is an incredible resource, especially in these times where travel is a little bit difficult but we're also realizing it's not always necessary for our education, especially when we're starting our career, we just want to get as much as we can and a platform like Ripe Global's membership is perfect for that. But Ripe Global is a lot more than that. They've got the fellowship in restorative dentistry and while it's already started with the posterior dentistry course, they've just released the anterior dentistry course, one where you're going to learn about composites, aesthetics, isolation and indirect work as well. One of the hardest things to do in dentistry is a single front tooth and this course is aimed at helping you improve that skill. Find out more at ripeglobal.com or check out the show notes and you can get 30% off a membership all from the comfort of your own home.
1: You've, Dr. Ivana, you've mentioned a few things um, that I want to touch on and in particular you mentioned forensic dentistry and you said you had an interest in it. Did you have much exposure to forensic dentistry as a general dentist and what did you really discover when you were volunteering? Because I've actually not really heard people talk much about it, so I'm sure our listeners are probably a bit curious about like, what is forensic dentistry.
0: So when I was... Um you know a, a dentist I wasn't really exposed much to forensic dentistry as well um, and the reason why I really like it is because when I was a dental student I was intrigued by the lectures that Professor Clement who was a forensic odontologist based in Melbourne at the time he mm-hmm. gave some lectures and I really enjoyed them and I found it very fascinating how he talked about using like say dental records to identify a diseased person then I thought to myself if I was to go down a career path then i need to see what they do exactly for work so i Mm approached prof clement at the time and then he said that you know have you done any postgraduate education in forensics have you you know explored courses in the area have you gone in and observed you know at the victorian institute of forensic medicine so he raised a lot of questions that I thought to myself, no, I haven't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, not that simple. (laughs) You know, I thought to myself, so if I haven't really explored all those, you know, things that he's mentioned, then I probably should. So then I Mm -hmm. thought to myself, then the first thing I should do is to do some courses and also to contact the head of the, um, you know, uh, Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine and see if I could actually go in and observe. And then fortunately, Mm. at the time, uh, there was this forensic odontologist called Dr. Anthony Hill. And he Mm. said to me, well, you're more than welcome to come in, but I need to sort of slowly condition you to the environment and see how you Mm -hmm. feel about it. Because it can be quite confronting for even a dentist to see dead bodies. So he... -hmm. He gave me a very sort of, I guess, soft introduction into it. And then I thought to myself, okay, I can, I can tolerate this I can take this it's quite okay I haven't had any nightmares from observing the first time so I thought to myself yeah I'll go in and do a bit more and what they do in the um, Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine is that um, they have a lot of uh, like say disease bodies to identify uh, because some people for example they they, are, you know, they die in a car crash or they committed suicide. And before actually returning the body of the deceased person back to their families, they need to be identified first because, you know, otherwise yeah. sometimes some of the bodies are not recognisable So, and yeah. you don't want to return the wrong body back to the families. So it's important to identify them not just with the identity Identification card on them, but also using dental records because it's a lot cheaper than, for example, like DNA um, identification, which usually costs about thousands of mm-hmm. dollars. We did a lot of identification there. Um, the other thing that was interesting for me to do there was um, dental aging. So there were mm-hmm. a lot of refugee kids, like say moving, you know, to Melbourne, and usually the parents will say, "Oh, this child is." six or seven years old and we want him to go to school at that level but how do you know if the age given by the parents were correct and you know you you can't just base it on Mm -hmm. papers that hey they have uh, from you know the hospital as well because the hospitals sometimes may not record the date exactly so they had to Mm -hmm. actually use dental aging techniques using the opg to age a child so that was the other thing that helped out as well
1: Oh, that's interesting. I wouldn't have thought of that. I guess now all our lectures in first year on tooth morphology is making sense now. <laughs> Dr. Ivana, with how long would it take to identify a person?
0: Uh, it doesn't take uh, you know a long time, but I would say that you know most of the disease bodies that I saw at the uh, mortuary, they probably been there for at least a couple of days or a few days. So it doesn't take a very Mm -hmm. long time if dental identification was possible, but only if the patient has been to a dentist and they were able to locate the dental records. So usually what happens Mm. is the families of the diseased person will be asked to contact the dentist and ask for the diseased person's dental records. Like, you know, even uh, OPGs or bite wings, uh, periapical radiographs would be great. uh, And also charting done by the Mm -hmm. dentist.
1: Mm, I see. That's really fascinating. I think a very interesting specialty that you know, unfortunately, like you said, wasn't right for you. But you yeah, know, maybe we'll get a forensic odontologist on the show sometime. That's very interesting. <laughs> oh,
0: <laughs> I can just suggest someone to come on the show, <laughs> definitely. Yeah,
1: yeah. I have to ask you for some contacts afterwards. <laughs> the second part that I wanted to ask you, Dr. Ivana, was when you were saying that you really enjoyed studying, which I'm not sure a lot of people would say, but what did you feel like there was a difference, you know, studying after 10 years of being a general dentist, like going back to study compared to when you first did your dental degree as an undergraduate? Did you feel like you had a different attitude towards your studying, different techniques or perspective? Or would you just say like grad and undergrad dentistry were just completely different um, beasts to handle?
0: I think that when I was a dental student, like thinking to myself, um, you know, I wanted to um, do well in my studies. Like, I was focusing more on the grades and, you know, focusing on getting mm. the assignments done. Um, but it was when I mm-hmm. graduated, when I'm out there working, then I realized to myself. Gosh, you know, I really didn't learn this area very well in dentistry, um, and then you know, because when you are working in a dental practice, a lot of responsibilities lies with you know lie with yourself, and you <clears throat> are in charge of making some irreversible decisions, right, in dentistry. I really felt this sense of responsibility and weight on my shoulders when I was working in private practice. And every day I was thinking to myself as a young dentist, gosh, I hope I don't stuff this up. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and, then, you know, and, yeah. and the more challenges you encounter along the way, even though you're doing better as a dentist, you start to think to yourself, I wish I had known this uh, you know, in the past, or I wish I have actually asked my demonstrator about this in the past because, you know, when you're out working, um, the pers- the people you can ask are either your work colleagues or, you know, your mentors or specialists that you work together with, right? And sometimes mm-hmm. it's very intimidating. I mean, depending on who you work with, but it can be quite mm-hmm. intimidating to ask questions and even silly questions. So I felt yeah. very embarrassed, like, at the start with my uh, knowledge And I thought to myself, gosh, I need to do better than this. So when I actually went back to um, study again as a postgraduate student, I definitely appreciated my teachers a lot more. And I probably um, asked a lot more questions than I used to as an undergraduate because I was also a bit more confident as a person. Where when I was an undergraduate I was Mm -hmm. younger and I was just a bit shy and you know more introverted so I thought to myself I shouldn't really ask such a silly question but when I was a post-grad I asked every silly question I could come up with (laughs) so I I, I think I asked my demonstrators in my post-grad studies a lot of questions but you know now thinking back I, I think I did the right thing to do that because then I clarify any confusion that I had. So I learned more. I felt like my demonstrators in post grad studies, they really, I could see that they really wanted to help me out as well. They really wanted to, you know, see me improve. So in that sense, I even approached them at their practices and, you know, for example, this is just an example. Um, I was preparing for a Viber exam that was about 19 mm-hmm. minutes in my post-grad studies and I said to my demonstrator is it all right if you just show me a few cases at your clinic I'm happy to come to your clinic anytime and if you just show me a few cases and test me test my knowledge because mm. that way is the only way that I can get some practice at fiver exams before I actually sit for my exam so quite a few of them you know allowed me to do that and I really appreciate it you know, them giving me their time to do so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and it, as it, an undergraduate, this was something that I wouldn't even have thought of doing because I'm too shy. And, you know, it sh- I think as a student, when you are in a course, try to make use of your teachers as much as possible to help you to improve and make all your mistakes, you know, if possible. Um, because it's just the environment for you to learn from and your teachers are going to be people that will, you know, will understand that, you know, uh, at the start, you're going to not know a lot of things, you're going to make mistakes. So they are very, very understanding about that. Um, so, yeah, I think um, definitely my mindset has changed in terms of learning um, compared to when I was an undergraduate
1: yeah, it's really interesting that you say that. And I think perhaps it comes with age and experience that you become a better student because as you were saying that, I was like, that is so true. You know, like for us, well, for us at UCID where we do our dentistry is still post-grad, right? But then it's still the same mentality where we're, embarrassed or shy or scared to ask demonstrators questions but I think oftentimes it's just because we don't know what we don't know and even though we're told to ask questions it's like I don't know what questions to ask but interestingly just this past week my friend and I did a elective in the ortho department so we were you know following around one of the the orthodontists but he had all his registrars with him as well and um, all of them that were the the post-grad ortho students that were studying and as we were watching them my friend and I observed like wow they ask a lot of questions (laughs) and it's exactly like what you said where it's like they asked any questions there were no silly questions even some of the most simple questions they would ask it as well and I wonder whether that's just the thing with you know having practiced general dentistry for a little bit or become a lot more a bit more confident or um, you know uh, inquisitive and curious about finding things you're um, more readily seeking that kind of information as you're studying.
0: And also when I was a post-grad student, I have to, um, you know, uh, assess other students like the, um, the dental students doing their basic uh, general degree course. And I think to myself, like, how can I actually make them learn actively? Not just when there was a patient around. Sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, um, in the student clinic, you may have a patient that doesn't show up um, or you mm-hmm. might, you know, find that you're going to have some spare time uh, because your patient might only require, say, a short amount of your time. And I try to create ways for students to learn. For example, um, I try to pair the weaker students with the stronger students so that, the, you know, they may not be best friends. <laughs> um, I try to pair them up in terms of the weaknesses and strengths that I see. For example, if a student was Mm -hmm. very good in communication, I would try to pair Mm -hmm. the student up with someone who was a bit quieter um, or Mm -hmm. um, a student that was really good in, say, restorative work with someone who was not. Um, The other thing I would do is I will hold like a group briefing session at the end of the clinical session, which would take maybe about 10 to 15 minutes, um, depending on the questions that come up. But... It's basically just to go through any um, confusion or anything new that you know someone has learned in the session. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you know, I I will ask a question and say to everybody, Have anybody tried doing this? Um, have you had to say obturate you know a tooth with two root canals that sort of merge or join together apically? So, what are the ways we could actually obturate such a canals? So I'll raise a question like that. And then, you know, Mm -hmm. on that day, perhaps one of the students will have to answer because they have just done something like that. And then I'll get the student to Mm -hmm. share what he or she has learned with the other students so that the other students who didn't actually get the experience of doing so could learn from it. And so I found that pretty helpful to have that briefing discussion in the clinic. I don't know whether it's something that you know um, that you have experienced before.
1: Yeah, no, I think definitely where like different tutors have a different way of tutoring, and you have some that uh, are more so there to help you out if you have any questions. But definitely some who you know give you scenarios either at the beginning or afterwards, or ask you what you learned today. And I think those are very very valuable reflective um, moments. But also what you said about how we can learn so much from each other like through dental school we only get a handful of cases um, the reality is we're not really seeing every dental problem there is but if you share with your friends they might have done something that you haven't had and so it's very valuable learning from one another.
3: As dentists and dental students we all have difficult days You may experience workplace or training demands that have a direct impact on your physical, emotional and psychological health and well-being. This is exactly what dental practitioner support is for. It's a completely confidential and independently run service that's funded by the Dental Board of Australia in an effort to support practitioners and dental students right across the country. Sometimes people call just at the end of a long day to debrief, but sometimes they call because there's more challenging things going on. Dental practitioner support is there for you in these times to give proactive advice, help you improve your health and well-being before there are major concerns. We all need a helping hand sometimes, and it's okay to ask for help. So if you find you need it, call 1-800-377-700 or visit the website dpsupport.org.au. They have loads of great information to get you started.
1: Dr. Ivana, so you've taught birth just like general dentistry, but also um the post-grad endodontics as well do you have any tips or any i think i guess like common pitfalls or mistakes that you see students um finding themselves uh falling into that you any advice that you would give
0: i would probably describe them as just uh, difficulties um uh, that mm-hmm. is quite normal for any um dental student or dentist to encounter um because you know, the more complex the case gets um, or the more complex mm-hmm. the patient is to deal with, um, there's going to be a, a level, a limit where you're going to find it challenging. And I think that if, it's, if you're managing a case that is re- challenging, the first thing to do is to recognize that it is challenging in that area. Discuss with someone, you know, why, you know, and find out what you can do. To help manage that situation. Mm-hmm. That's what I see a lot of people having trouble with, recognizing that it's challenging to begin with. And I mm-hmm. actually had that problem myself as a, you know, young dentist. I, you know, when I first graduated, for example, there was no case difficulty assessment form for me to look at, you know, when I carry out endodontic treatment. Mm-hmm. The level of difficulty was measured by, you know, the the amount of sweating you, you you know, you have in your hands. <laughs> and also, yeah. you know, how stressed you feel like doing the treatment, uh, managing the patient. And there was no sort of a guide to it. And I think now there is a guide to it, make use of it. And also when you encounter something challenging, have a good discussion uh, with the demonstrator mm-hmm. or with your colleagues and to see what they would do differently. And also the other thing I was going to mention that is that um, I find that some dentists do feel a bit uncomfortable to tell a patient that you know they need to be referred to a specialist because they feel bad that you mm-hmm. know, they can't manage the case, first of all. And secondly, um, the patient might actually put them under pressure and say, you can do it um, because I can't afford to go to mm-hmm. see a specialist, for example. And I think that mm-hmm. that's one area that, you know, dentist or dentists can work on in communication with the um you know patient on you know how to convince them in in terms of referring them uh even just for consultation because um i find that um some cases you, you know the patient might just need a consultation to decide whether to actually have the tooth extracted or save it for example because you know, the the case might be very challenging to manage and perhaps extraction is really the best option for them instead of actually continuing Mm. endodontic treatment, for example, uh, especially after a complication like a perforation. It comes down to learning how to communicate with the patient and it can be quite challenging um, for some clinicians. And one of the ways to actually overcome that is by observing, you know, experienced clinicians on how they talk to patients um, there's a few lines dentists will come up with and, you know, or talk to, I guess, the endodontists uh, that you work together with and see, you know, how they will explain to patient about referring.
1: Yeah, actually, Dr. Ivana, could we actually perhaps role play this situation or kind of create a scenario? Because I think it's actually quite interesting and, you know. Perhaps some of our listeners haven't had the chance to, you know, observe a general dentist or a specialist and actually hear the way that they communicate, right? But the reason why I wanted to ask this was because I've actually heard of a few situations of recent grads where I guess this isn't ideal, but, you know, there's been a complication, um, whether it be that they perforated or there's been an instrument that's fractured and they've kind of tried, you know, putting a band aid over it. And I can see why that. You know, they're, they're scared, they're anxious, they don't know how to break it to the patient, they kind of try sweeping it under the carpet but then obviously that um, something will, will, will show and they get called out for it down the track, right? And I think it's very easy as an outsider to be like, why didn't you refer or why didn't you just tell them they should see an endodontist? But I think sometimes it's just not knowing how to have that conversation. And I guess I was going to ask you, like how do you think we should be telling the patient beforehand. I guess ideally, it's always you tell them beforehand rather than afterwards, right? Um, but could we perhaps, like, could you give me an example of how we should be communicating to the patient and suggesting or you know, the need for an endodontic referral?
0: Definitely think that at the start, um, in your consultation with the patient regarding a truth that requires endodontic treatment, definitely discuss through <laughs> what makes treatment complex. In his or her case, mm. um, for example, you know, you might mention to the patient, this truth has very narrow root canals, or very curved mm-hmm. root canals, or you know, you can see that the pulp chamber is actually hard to tell on the radiograph uh, where it is mm-hmm. exactly because it could there could be calcifications within the pulp chamber. For example, definitely explain uh, what you see on the radiograph to the patient that you you know, you think that would make treatment complex. Explain that, you know, when we work towards the back of the mouth, for example, it gets harder to actually find uh, the pulp chamber um, because your mouth opening is smaller in the back of the mouth. And I think that, you know, if you explain it in very simple terms, patients will understand what makes their treatment complex, first of all. That's very important to get across to the patient first. The second thing Mm -hmm. is that, you know, for example, if you fracture a hand file, It's very important to think to yourself, okay, now this complication has happened. How can I just stay calm and explain to the patient what to do? You might need to go outside the room and get a drink of water and come back. (laughs) (laughs) Just keep your heart rate down. Because like I (laughs) remember when I first fractured my um, first hand file in a patient's tooth, I felt terrible. My heart just sank because I felt like, oh, you know, now I can't continue treatment for the patient and I have to refer this patient off. And What I learned was that the most important thing is to say to the patient, once you finish, you know, say, placing the medicament, placing the temporary restoration, sit the patient up, make sure you explain things in a very calm manner and, you know, show the patient the radiograph where the file has fractured and say to the patient, look, um, your tooth is very complex. The root canal is very, very tiny, very narrow and, it has, you know, one of the little uh, files that I use have fractured inside the root canal because it's got caught inside the root canal. Explain it in terms mm-hmm. of how complex the case is and what has happened as a result mm-hmm. of the, you know, anatomy of the tooth. And stay calm yes. and say that, you know, um, this happens in a small number of cases, mm-hmm. and I know, you know, really the the um, specialist to refer you for that to manage it when it happens. The the specialist also explain to the patient what the specialist might do. The specialist might uh, open up the area and then decide to try to get past the hand file. Um, They have more specialized equipment and tools and training to be able to do that. So if the Mm -hmm. specialist can actually get past or bypass or retrieve the file, then it's going to provide you with a very good outcome for the treatment So I do suggest that you see one. That's definitely explain to the patient what the specialist would do because sometimes the the patient will come to me and say, I don't understand why I'm being referred to you. And then I have to explain to the patient, you know, what is written in the letter and, you know, explain to them that their treatment is complex. And I say to Mm -hmm. them that general dentists would usually manage most cases, but if the case does get complex, they will then get me to help them out with it.
1: Mm -mm -mm -mm. that's kind of what you would say to the patient I guess once the complication has occurred right but what would you say to the patient um I guess before you've embarked on treatment where you think this may be a complex tooth and you're presenting them the two options of where mm, yes they may be able to do it with you but it is difficult and or the alternative is seeking a specialist like how would you go about having that conversation
0: um so when i was a general dentist i would actually first of all make it clear to the patient that if i was to start the process i cannot guarantee that i'll be able to finish it if it was complex i don't give patients that expectation first of all and i say to them i might start the treatment and then decide it's going to be too complex for me to continue on if you really want me to do it and also explain to the patient that You know, in some of the cases, I just don't have the, you know, equipment or materials to do this procedure. If you want to get treatment for this tooth, if you really want to keep this tooth, then you will need to see a specialist. And you have to think to yourself as a dentist, am I going to manage this case or not? Because once you start treatment, you kind of have this responsibility to take it on, right? When I was a general dentist, for example, um, when I was thinking whether I should extract a tooth or not, Um, it it became very clear to me that I need to make that decision at the start because I don't want to start an extraction and get caught up in it for over an hour and, you know, and can't extract the tooth anyway. So I need to Mm -hmm. make that call for myself, thinking to myself, I need to decide Am I going to start the process or am I not going to? So that's very important to determine for yourself first. Mm-hmm. If it's complex, then, you know, and you think maybe I can start it and see how I go, then you need to definitely do not um, over-promise to the patient that you can do it and finish <laughs> it. Yeah. Um, and because you want to sort of uh, under-promise and over-deliver, if that makes sense, in dentistry. Otherwise, you're going to put yourself under a lot of pressure and stress. And for Mm -hmm. a start, when I was a young dentist, I didn't really treat molars at the beginning because I didn't feel that comfortable, um, you know, treating molar teeth at the start. So I focused on Mm -hmm. managing anteriors and premolars until I felt comfortable, say, enough to tackle, say, a mandibular molar.
1: I see. Yes, I think key takeaway is under promise, under promise, under promise. It's the tooth's fault. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> oh, no, I love that. I think that's a very that was very good. And thank you for going through the kind of you know script or dialogue um, you'd say to the patients because I think that's oftentimes the the problem is just you know like you said struggling with communicating with the patient and then just getting scared. And I think especially when we're um, just like early on in our career, there's that lack of confidence where. You, you're, you want to tell the patient that yeah, I can do it, right? Like I can look after you. Whereas, I guess the reality is really you don't want to bite off more than you can chew, and it's okay to be like tell them it's hard, it's difficult.
0: You have to make the patient understand that as a general dentist, you won't be able to do every aspect of treatment, and I think that realizing in your mind that the patients come to you and they don't expect you to be able to do everything as well—that's a very important point to remember. It's 2022,
1: a time where cloud-based software is enhancing every aspect of our lives. So why not leverage those same capabilities in something we use every day, our dental practice management software. Imagine a platform rethought from the ground up, intuitive and intelligent, using the possibility of today's technology for your patients and your business. A solution that optimizes our daily workflows, creating the edge that modern dentists need to stay competitive and connected. Principal Practice
0: Management Software is this solution. Efficient, intelligent, intuitive. Because it's 2022 and you expect better. Go to principal.dental to learn more.
1: Good point. I like that. So, Dr. Ivana, that's, I guess, you know, the, we've covered your general dentistry, you've covered you, you you studying and, you know, specializing. And then in case that wasn't enough for you, you've decided to also take on a PhD as well. What made you decide that you'd also wanted to put a PhD
0: under your belt as well? Um so when I did my um, DCD, uh, my specialty mm-hmm. training, I had to do a minor thesis at the time. I thought to myself, okay, it will be a good chance for me to see if I really do enjoy the research process and mm-hmm. all that studying, all that you know, um, collect, uh, data collection, uh, data analysis and write-up. I have to say that I really enjoyed it um, and I found that mm-hmm. it's quite uh, exciting to discover new knowledge that you create for yourself. So when you actually start a research project, you have to come up with a question, a research question. And I thought to myself, you know, that's really, really quite fun to do, create a research question to answer a question, uh, like a burning question in your mind. Um, and also the other thing I like about research is that you it creates new knowledge for other clinicians to take away from it if they read your paper. And it may potentially... <coughs> change what they do in their treatment as well. So during my DCD, I ended up writing two other case reports um, because I found two clinical cases that were very intriguing to me um, on regenerative endodontics. And so I approached my professor Mm -hmm. and I said to him in my final year, can I write this up? Do you think it's a good idea? So I actually approached him. Yeah. And you look at me. He probably think, why is this student wanting to do even more work than what she's required to do <laughs> in a DCT. And then I yeah. thought to myself, and you know, it's gonna be a fun project to do. That was my initial thought. And also if I really put my mind into it, I probably can do it quite quickly and i actually finished writing Mm -hmm. up the case reports in a matter of about three to four weeks so it was a very short amount of time they both managed to be published in the journal of endodontics in the end so i was Mm -hmm. quite surprised i was quite pleasantly surprised and Mm -hmm. also surprised by how many people the articles have reached and, you know, being approached by mm-hmm. um, different endodontists on what I think about different areas of, uh, you know, different areas in uh, regenerative endodontics as well. So I enjoyed the research process a lot when I was doing my DCD. And then when I finished my DCD, I then started writing a paper with my professor as well on diagnosis of dental pain because i thought i said to him i think it'd be a good idea if i write up a paper that's going to help guide you know dentists um, in management of uh, dental pain or diagnosis of it and we Mm -hmm. came up with a very rough sort of guide to what how we wanted to write the paper and in the end the paper took about a long, long time to write—about maybe two to three years to write. Yeah, it was a very long time. You know, it was rejected by uh, I think two papers at the start, and then eventually I ended up approaching Australian prescriber, and they said to yeah. me, "Why don't you write up a paper that will be more suited for medical practitioners? Because a lot of uh, GP doctors, they you know, they end up seeing patients with dental pain." And the mm-hmm. only thing they know what to do is to prescribe antibiotics. So, yeah. <laughs> so they said to me, why don't you write that? And we would actually pay you for the article. So oh. I thought to myself, why not? Why not change my article and write it up in such a way that it will help medical practitioners? So you revamped it. Yes, I mm-hmm. revamped it. Mm-hmm. Um, took me a mm-hmm. while, um, but I got mm-hmm. there eventually and the paper got published. Yeah, that was really good. I mean, I, it, I was very... Um, I I guess I felt like it took a long time, but it was, um, you know, it was rewarding and um, Mm I was so glad when it was published because then we had a podcast, a short podcast about it, the paper had some, uh, a bit of social media coverage on the news. So Mm -hmm. that was pretty nice. And then I went to, uh, I was traveling in Europe at the time just before the paper was published And then I went to a university in Amsterdam and I visited the postgraduate students um, and uh, area. And I also attended one of their seminars. And then I met this um, PhD student there who was actually doing a PhD on um, endodontic education in. Uh, Netherlands I said to her oh so what are you doing in your PhD like what are you specifically looking at so she was looking at the self-efficacy of the dental students at their level of confidence in what Mm. they do in endodontics so then she said to me is anyone doing something similar in Australia so I said to her Mm. not that I know of and then mm-hmm. when I came back to Australia, I started looking into it more, and I started to you know look up papers on endodontic education in Australia, and there were some older papers, but not many. Some on rural education, but there's not m- not much knowledge uh, or information about how the students think. The the education in the dental school has helped them especially when they go out to practice do they find that what they have learned in the school has actually mm-hmm. helped them to become confident as dentists as well so i thought to myself why don't i actually do a phd in this topic and look into it more because nobody yeah. has and it's such a broad topic it just can cover so many areas. So I thought this is a good topic for me to go into. And that's how it all started.
1: Wow. Dr. Ivana, you feel like we've come full circle because you know what this sounds like. It's like when you were telling me at the very beginning how you started off two years ago running two kilometers and then you built yourself up to a marathon. It's like you started off with a case report and then now you're doing a full-blown PhD. (laughs) Can you tell me what does a PhD entail? Like what is it? How long does it take? What is the workload like? How does it differ from just doing like a case report or doing those smaller papers?
0: From my own experience doing PhD, so mm-hmm. I'm a part time PhD student and the mm-hmm. whole process will take about approximately six years. And it's a very self driven process. So mm-hmm. you have your supervisors that, you know, work with you on your topic, but you have to drive it. So you will say to your supervisor, for example, um, I like to sort of look into these areas. And then so your supervisor will say to you, OK, how about if you write up a lead review and show it to me and show me what questions you have about you know different areas in, say, the topic that you're interested in. Um, and basically you're mm-hmm. looking up for like any questions or any loopholes of information that hasn't been discovered yet. It's it's a very self-driven process. And what I found about it is that you have to um, treat it a bit like a job. So you have to commit yourself to certain days when you can work on it. uh, Because if you don't set aside time and do that, then it becomes very difficult to progress along with your PhD. And it's not like, you know, DCD where... You know, you go into the clinics, you have certain hours or commitment, you have to present this seminar or you have to write up this paper. It's a lot more controlled in a, a DCD compared to a PhD mm-hmm. because it, with a PhD, you are the main driver of it all. Um, and your yeah. supervisors are just like the traffic light controllers <laughs> they're going to say no it's not a good idea going down this path maybe try the other path uh, or they'll give <laughs> you some different sort of ways to think about things and say to you okay maybe you shouldn't do it in this way so they're kind of like the controllers to say Okay, Mm -hmm. from my experience, this is not a good path to go down into. Maybe this method is better, for example. Uh, So they give you suggestions and ideas on what you do. But eventually what happens is that once you complete a PhD, you're supposed to be an expert in the topic that you're interested in. You're supposed Mm -hmm. to be able to answer questions in the topic and discover new knowledge that nobody else has. That's what you're working towards and become an independent researcher uh, where you can actually liaise with, say, other researchers in the same topic or different topics and create your own projects then on. So mm-hmm. I think from my perspective, doing a PhD allows will allow me to um, liaise with other researchers, which is very exciting for me. And the other mm-hmm. thing too that I like about it is that it may give me opportunities to, say, work in a different country, you know, just doing academic teaching or work. Or research work so it can potentially uh, change my path in my career as well so yeah that's w- the way I look at it um, but in terms of doing it um, I find it actually to me writing and reading is very therapeutic and relaxing for me, not for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. maybe not for everybody crazy one. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, not, yeah. maybe not for everybody <laughs> but um, mm-hmm. i like you know, the idea of creating something um, that will help Mm -hmm. others or change the way others think about things. That to me is purposeful and that's motivating for me. That's how I end up, I guess, you know, with the PhD process. And um, this is why I, really want to do
1: one. That's really wonderful. I have so much respect for you Dr. Ivana. That's incredible. Like so I what I'm getting from you is that that doing this PhD really elevates your qualifications. You become an expert in this field. Is there can I ask you're writing your thesis throughout this period, right? And is that then published? Is that kind of the physical end goal, or are you doing multiple papers throughout the throughout the period? How does what are you, I guess, working on
0: with a PhD mm-hmm. um, thesis? You may or may not publish it, okay, depending on your results or what you come up with um, in, in your research. But of course, I think it's better if you get published, so you become more well known mm-hmm. because you get cited by others and. Mm-hmm. I guess if your site being cited or being published in a good journal, then that's even better for you to be well known in your you know field of research. So I think for me, I hope that you know my papers will get published, um, mm-hmm. and that's a goal that I'm working towards. But it doesn't have to be. I mean, it, it doesn't have to be for everyone who's doing a PhD.
1: Yes, regardless, you very much, you can tell that you've put a lot of time and effort and commitment into it. And yeah, that's really wonderful to hear, Dr. Ivana. And I think it kind of wraps us up towards the end of our podcast. And I think there's a few other few last questions I wanted to ask you, but it leads quite nicely into it where you say that, you know, doing a PhD, you very much had to be the driver of it yourself. And I think a common theme throughout our podcast was, you know, you being disciplined and, you know, having these, uh, being organized and kind of setting your setting plans out for yourself was there any, ever any was there ever a period i guess during your career or your life where i guess you felt like you burnt out or that you struggled or where you know things were just difficult because you're doing so many things How are you constantly driven or are
0: there times where, you know, you've really hit a wall? I do remember that in one stage in my working career that I felt a bit burnt out and that was because I was working at the Mm -hmm. time like uh, maybe about five or six days a week uh, consistently Mm -hmm. for a couple. of, um, And sometimes, you know, I think as a young dentist – Things are a bit out of your control because at the start of your career, you want to gain as much clinical experience as possible, and you may have, say, mm-hmm. you know, a mortgage to pay off. You may have financial uh, reasons that you have to work for, you know, many many days per week, for example, and mm-hmm. it can take a toll on you, especially you know, if you're you, you if you're physically tired or um, emotionally drained for any other reasons Uh, because things can happen in your life throughout your whole life. For example, personal issues um, that can happen or you might get unwell or you you might have to look after family members. For example, there could be many reasons in life that could change how you feel overall in your life. And one of the ways I managed to overcome that burnout period was really just to Think about um, you know finding a job that will allow me to work part time. That's one thing, and also giving me some flexibility in my work hours as well. So that's what I did. I ended up leaving um, a job that I worked in for many years, uh, working five or six days to a job where I was just working three days a week, and that gave mm-hmm. me a long weekend every weekend. So I worked Monday to Wednesday, <laughs> and then I had a long weekend every weekend. Charge myself, but. I was fortunate enough to have the ability to do that. Sometimes not easy to find, say, the right job for yourself. Even if you look, um, you may not have that many opportunities. It can be hard, um, but I was lucky in the sense that I managed to find work quite quickly that was part-time and that suited more to my needs yeah and that that was one thing that i did that helped me the other thing that i found helpful was definitely find an area of interest outside dentistry that is very different it mm-hmm. doesn't have to be sports it doesn't have to be running for example but it, yeah. it, <laughs> even like uh, you know something creative like artwork crafts or something that you do with a group of friends if you like community stuff mm-hmm. so something that keeps you i guess in um socially active and something that is creative i think just to so you have you know something that is going to take your mind off dentistry um so that when you actually finish your work you can switch off and that's very important mm-hmm. because when i finish working in clinics when i get home i get changed i just don't think of myself as a dentist anymore And I just think of myself as a cook (laughs) or or I can cook something nice for myself and need to have that that button to switch off. Uh, That's Mm -hmm. very important to master. Yeah,
1: I think that's wonderful and you're very right. Like dentistry is just one aspect of who we are but it is not everything right dr Vana. i have one final question for you before we wrap up the podcast and i think you've kind of touched on it perhaps but you can take this however um you want to interpret it but we always end the podcast by asking our guests look we're speaking to a lot of you know dental students and recent graduates on our podcast and if you could give one tip whether that be you know clinical or non-clinical whether it's dentistry or not dentistry related but if you could give one tip to just anyone what
0: would it be? I believe in following your heart. So if you mm-hmm. really enjoy something, if you think that mm-hmm. you're, you know, for example, you might explore dentistry and think, I really think I'm good in doing this. Like I have a good eye for aesthetics, or um, I'm good in helping patients to manage pain, for example. Then, you know, follow your heart, follow your passion. Um, that's mm-hmm. very important, and really start to understand yourself. Um, when, you, when it comes to choosing your career path. If you can see your work as like a calling or a passion, then yeah. you will you never feel like it's exhausting at work or it's uh, hard um, because you're going to mm-hmm. see it as you know, something that's rewarding, something that is giving mm-hmm. back to you in some way that you're really enjoying helping other people in the area that you're good in or you're getting good in yeah definitely find what triggers your love for dentistry that's what advise all students and dentists yeah
1: wonderful thank you so much dr avana i honestly think you are such a boss lady i have so much respect for you you do so many things and it was incredible just having this conversation with you thank you so much for joining us on the show
0: thank you erica so lovely talking to you and have a really good evening